Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 29, and it will be followed with simultaneous publication of episode 30, which is a continuation of the same topic. Sorry, everyone. I know I promised that episode 30 would be the beginning of the Grassy Knoll series, but there was still too much to cover related to the schoolbook depository shots. So, episode 31 is now where we will commence covering the Grassy Knoll and the general idea that other shots came from locations other than the schoolbook depository. So, back to where we are now in the series. Over these next two episodes, 29 and 30, we'll explore the remaining few witnesses in Dealey Plaza that saw a gunman in the window of the depository. Today, in episode 29, we cover Amos Lee Ewens, and in episode 30, we'll cover James Worrell and Ronald Fisher and Robert Edwin Edwards, and also the inmates at the jail. So, without further ado, let's listen to episode 29. It's funny how when you take wanders like this, you know, you just stumble across things. Sometimes they are just things that should stand out, but otherwise don't. Perhaps they stand out more than they otherwise would. You know, if you weren't wandering. All right, what do I mean by this ramble? Well, as we were finishing up episode 28, when I was pondering the idea that there were over 300 possible witnesses to the things we were talking about in that episode, in other words... At the end of the parade, Dealey Plaza was basically the end of the line, and there were massive crowds all along the way that day, but Dealey was the last little bit. And it was big enough, still, 300 or so people there on that day, in that little enclave, and yet only three people came forward to say that they had seen it. That is, only three people who saw two people in the window or windows at the depository with a gun. Really? Only three saw it? And all three came forward to talk to law enforcement? It, it dawned on me it, it was more than just a random act that caused this small number of folks at the party that prevented more people from saying, I saw it. Why do I say that? Well, if you look up in the depository windows that day, some 15 or 20 minutes before the motorcade made that right turn off of Maine onto Houston Street, and there are things going on in that window with those assassins intermittently, almost from about 1210 or 1215 all the way to about 1230 when the shots were fired, there was a 15 to 20 minute period for folks who were standing around Dealey Plaza and, and basically just waiting for the big moment for the motorcade to come, there was plenty of time to look up, to look up and around. 
the fact that only 1% of those witnesses say they saw that and came forward to say they saw that, well, I just have to believe there is more to that story. Can you imagine if you were right there in the thick of it, waiting in Dealey Plaza? There are other complications, granted. We heard them in earlier episodes. For one, Billy Ray Williams was up on the sixth floor eating his lunch until about 12.15 or 12.20. I know we have other technical time constraints, too, that we have discussed. But still, it's clear these gunmen, these killers, were probably visible for more than just a few seconds for a few people to catch a glimpse of. Whoever it was that was up in those windows displayed an almost casual handling of the situation, and certainly an amazingly cavalier one, meaning that they would show themselves so blatantly in the window or windows that far in advance of an attempted shooting. And again, to drive it home, that very fact to me, well, it also suggests that they were probably visible on more than just the occasions that those few witnesses say they saw them in advance. Hmm. My point in all of this is that the terror of this event affected everyone, both those that saw it and came forward and everyone else too, especially those who saw something and did not come forward. The enormity of this event and the terror and trauma it brought were evident from the start, and that affects witnesses too. You will hear from Charles Brem. I've added him now. Mr. Brem was a ranger in the U.S. Army, a man who helped his country win the war during World War II, and he helped America liberate Europe. Rangers generally did some pretty dangerous stuff. I'm sure he knew what the most dangerous of circumstances felt like. I am sure he had experiences with bullets flying all around, experiences that he hoped he would never see again when he returned to civilian life. He was among a handful of witnesses that was closest to the presidential limousine when the fatal shot was fired there on Elm Street. But afterward, he was there with his young son, and you could hear the trembling in his voice during the interview which took place at the TV station shortly after the assassination that afternoon. The trembling of his voice, really, you could hear the terror in his voice and the horror of what had happened. They were quite apparent to him and to the audience that day that got a chance to live that moment with him. Maybe, in some ways, as a man who had likely experienced those things already in life, and to a greater degree than most ever will, well, he just knew the real danger that existed, and especially the thought of being so close to it. And, in a paternal sense, the thought of having his young son be so close to it as well. I can understand that feeling. Now, for him, though, this time, it was not another soldier beside him in the fight. It was actually his son that was in harm's way. That is a measure of fright that is hard to put into words for a father. And at the same time, and during that last episode, episode 28, I saw how calm and collected an 18-year-old could be. Arnold Rowland was just that. 
Too young, maybe, to totally understand the awesome implications of it all. Yet, with enough personal grit and grounding, he withstood the process. His world up to that point, whatever it consisted of, helped him to do just that. At the tender age of 18, he had experienced his own season of readiness. I would say, before that fateful day, that undoubtedly, that season must have been enough at least to withstand the aftermath of what he himself was to go through as a witness. And so, as we prepare to address a small number of remaining witnesses that I want to introduce to you in episode 29 and again in uh, episode 30, that is, before we pivot to a meatier set of subjects in episode 31, the subjects of the grassy knoll and shots from another place, well, I realized how difficult it must have been for one of today's witnesses in particular. And I want to comment before we tell his story. If there ever was a witness who had a legitimate reason to be scared to death about saying something, well, just based on the historical context of the times, particularly if what he had to say was explosive, Amos Lee Ewens might be the character we would pick in this play to play that role. I don't know if Amos really had something, really anything more explosive to say than what is already in the official record, but I couldn't help but wonder about it when I wandered through his testimony and through the related FBI statements associated with their interviews of young Amos Lee Ewens. When reading the official documents, it came across as a conversation typical in the context of its time. Lots of yes sirs and no sirs. The very mindful and respectful responses you might expect from a 15-year-old in 1963. There is enough naivete present to begin with when it comes to a 15-year-old witness to a murder, as I say, certainly evident in the conversations. Perhaps the authorities didn't expect much from him as a witness, and perhaps This is where they took some editorial discretion regarding his statements and to accommodate the authority's desire to have all points of light point to Oswald. Really, in some ways, taking advantage of a young African-American youth to do so. Or, as an alternative theory, it may have represented simply the frightened mind of this young African-American boy, really not a man yet, in the Deep South in 1963, having seen something so explosive that even he knew that saying less would be best. The president was dead, after all, and maybe he should just avoid being involved. It wouldn't make a difference now, and staying out of it would avoid the inevitable terror that might come to himself. I'm not trying to be cryptic or generic here, but I think you'll see what I mean as we progress through Amos's story and his statements and testimony. So here we go. Let's just get to it. Within a minute or so of the assassination, Dallas Police Sergeant D.V. Harkness drove his three-wheeled motorcycle down the Elm Street extension, dashed into the crowd gathering near the west side of the book depository, and asked if anyone had seen where the shots came from. 
an unidentified man pointed to Amos Lee Ewens and said, this boy here saw it. Ewens told Harkness that the shots came from the last window on the southeast corner of the book depository. It was under the ledge. Harkness put Ewens on the back of his three-wheel motorcycle and he drove to the front entrance of the book depository where he placed young Ewens into the back of Inspector J. Herbert Sawyer's car. Harkness walked over to his three-wheeled radio and six minutes after the assassination broadcast the information on the police radio. I have a witness that says it came from the fifth floor of the Texas Depository Bookstore at Houston and Elm. I have him with me now. I'm going to seal off the building. Harkness later said that in his haste, he miscounted the floors of the building. The assistant news director of KRLD-TV and radio in Dallas, James R. Underwood, a character that we introduced in an earlier episode, had overheard young Ewens telling Harkness that he had seen a colored man lean out one of the depository windows with a rifle. After Harkness put Ewens into the police car, Underwood asked Ewens, did you see someone with a rifle? Ewens answered back, yes, sir. Underwood asked him, were they white or black? It was a colored man, Ewens replied. Are you sure it was a colored man? asked Underwood. Yes, sir, answered Ewens back. Well, just about at that moment, Secret Service Agent Forrest Sorrells arrived and accompanied Ewens and eyewitness Howard Brennan over to the sheriff's office at Maine and Houston to get a statement. Late fall would turn to winter. And before you know it, the Warren Commission would be ready to receive witnesses. Amos Lee Ewens would be one of them. Arlen Specter would be the attorney that day for the Warren Commission interviewing young Ewens. I think being interviewed by Arlen Specter at age 15 would have been intimidating for anyone. I'm just saying. Amos was positioned there in the plaza at Houston and Elm, standing right there on the corner. And then the president came around the corner and Amos began to wave at him. And as he continued to wave, looked his way and waved right back at Amos. Amos thought that, in his words, there wasn't hardly no one on the corner right there but me. From the movie and photographic evidence that is available to us, well, we know that is not the case, and we know that was just an exaggeration on young Amos's part. Or maybe, for just a moment, President Kennedy actually looked at this young man, waved back, and made him feel like, for just a moment, he was the only one there. What a thrill, really, for that 15-year-old young man. It would last for just seconds, though. Amos happened to look up at that moment, and he would see what he then described to the Warren Commission as a pipe in the window of the depository. In his own words, he said, and then I had seen a pipe, you know, up there in the window. I thought it was a pipe, some kind of pipe. Specter would then ask, when had you first seen that thing you just described as a pipe? And young Ewens would answer, right as he turned the corner here. Amos would make a mark on Commission Exhibit 366 to show exactly the window where the pipe was. Amos would go on to describe what happened next in his own words. He would say, then I was standing here, and as the motorcade turned the corner, I was facing, looking dead at the building, 
and so I seen this pipe thing sticking out the window. I wasn't paying too much attention to it. Then, when the first shot was fired, I started looking around, thinking it was a backfire. Everybody else started looking around. Then I looked up at the window, and he shot again. So, you know, this fountain bench here, right, around here. Well, anyway, there was a little fountain right here. I got behind this little fountain, and then he shot again. So after he shot again, he just started looking down this, you know, Spectre would then interrupt and asked, who started looking down that way? Amos would continue. He said, the man in the window. I could see his hand, and I could see his other hand on the trigger, and one hand was on the barrel thing. He would go on to explain that as the second shot occurred, Amos was still looking up. He would say, I was looking where the barrel was sticking out. He would also tell the commission that he believed there were four shots to be exact. Amos would describe his movement from an unguarded position on the street to a retreat behind a structure at the corner of Houston and Elm, but presumably still in the clear view of the depository window. He would further mark Commission Exhibit 366 to document those positions and movements. He would, in the same testimony, clarify the point about his movements to safety and say, and then, as I looked up there, you know, he fired another shot, you know, as I was looking. So I got behind this fountain thing right in there at this point. Amos would tell us more. In his own words, he would say, after he shot the first two times, I was just standing back here. And then after he shot again, he pulled the gun back in the window. And then all the police ran back over here in the track vicinity, referring to the railroad tracks. Amos would confirm to Spectre that he kept his eye on the window and the shooter through the third shot. As you might expect, Spectre didn't ask any questions about where young Amos's eyes were through the fourth shot. Imagine that. No more interview or discussion of a fourth shot by Arlen Specter, the inventor of the single bullet theory. That needed three, only three bullets to complete the file and make his theory work. I'm just saying. Amos went on to give the sparse level of details that he could about the identification of the individual in the window. He would say, I seen a bald spot on the man's head, trying to look out the window. He had a bald spot on his head. I was looking at the bald spot. I could see his hand, you know, the rifle laying across in his hand, and I could see his hand sticking out on the trigger part. And after he got through, he just pulled it back in the window. Amos would confirm that he saw the shooter pull the rifle back into the window. At this point, Amos like so many, decided to follow the crowd. His eyes would turn away from the scene in the sixth floor window, and he began to run toward the tracks. Shortly, though, before he got too far, he would identify an older policeman and run over to him and tell the policeman that he had seen the shots. That is when Amos got his famous three-wheel motorcycle ride back up to the front of the depository building. He would watch as the policeman called up more cars, and Amos would describe as quickly getting around the building. He would describe what he believed to be a lot of policemen emerging from the tracks and heading toward the depository. 
His exact approximation of the number of officers was 14 or more, something like that. A very nice round number. He didn't know or catch the names of any of the policemen. As Amos was waiting there, he listened to the conversations that were going on between the policemen and other persons. What happened next is important, so listen closely. Amos would overhear a man coming to tell the policeman that he had seen a man run out the back. In other words, running out the back of the depository. Spectre would press him, asking whether he knew who the man was that made that statement to the policeman. Ewens respectfully said, no, sir. But he did go on to elaborate that he was a construction man working back there. What gets more curious is that the same bald spot that Amos independently witnessed just a few seconds before would now be repeated by this same man talking to the policeman. Uh, well, that's, that's what Amos said anyway. This same man that was describing the man that ran out the back of the school book depository. Amos would overhear this man tell the policeman that the man who ran out the back had a kind of bald spot on his head. As you might expect, the questioning about this conversation just stopped there. Spectre asked no more about it. There was absolutely no more questions asked by Spectre on that topic, and no more testimony offered by the young Ewans. Spectre skillfully pivoted away from that topic, asking a mundane question about the next part of his journey over to the county jail to have his statement taken. And then they pivoted back into a discussion about what the gun looked like after hearing it described as a pipe. Back to Spectre asking incredibly benign questions like, did it look like a piece of metal to you? Really pathetic, actually. Amos would document that the end of the object, whatever it was, hopefully obvious to all of us now that it was the rifle, was beyond the window by about 14 or 15 inches. He would be asked, and he would state, that he did not recall whether the rifle had a scope on it. He would later describe it as sticking out three or four feet, a confusing supplement later in the conversation that he would semi-explain as the rifle progressing to being farther out the window as the president's car was approaching. He would clearly state the rifle was pointed down Elm Street toward the president and that it was sticking out far enough for the trigger to be visible. Amos would be more specific and say that it was not until the first shot that he could see this portion of the rifle extended out the window. Amos would reiterate that he was in the NDCC and knew what a rifle sounded like and realized after that shot, that first shot, that Amos was thinking it was a high-powered rifle. NDCC is something akin to ROTC. When asked to describe the man, he simply couldn't. He would describe the position of the man's head, essentially resting on the rifle and headed downward, basically eliminating the ability to clearly see his face, but exposing that bald spot on the top of his head. From Amos's angle of view, I actually find this testimony hard to believe. If he had been six floors up, that angle of view and his testimony on what he saw would make sense to me. 
But honestly, this doesn't. And honestly, I just wonder here whether he was just wanting that dog to lie down and take a nap. Uh, although he was never one in later years to change his story, uh, at least regarding his ability to identify the shooter in the window. It might have been a plausible story even 30 or 40 years later that a young, frightened African-American boy at the tender age of 15 was too afraid to tell the whole story. Oh, and this time, Amos couldn't tell the race of the person in the window either. In his words, he couldn't tell because the boxes were throwing a reflection and shading everything. Spectre pressed him on this, knowing already the testimony given by Jim Underwood about what young Amos said at the scene. Spectre would ask him again whether the man in the window was a Negro gentleman or a white man. Ewens would respectfully answer back, no, sir. Disgusted for sure, Spectre said, you couldn't even tell that. Ewens would go on to confirm that he also could not confirm this man's hair color, whether it was even dark or light or anything about his clothing. But young Amos sure did focus on that bald spot. He would testify pretty much that this man had a hairline that was probably about two and a half inches higher than what his own hairline was. Truly receding. Well, that's what I call it. Frustrated again, Spectre would have young Amos read the statement that he had made and signed at the sheriff's office the day of the assassination, hoping it might improve young Amos's memory. Keep in mind that those sheriff's office statements were often prepared for the witness, typed actually from notes, with the witness then reading them and signing to indicate concurrence. These were not all done that way, but some of them were, and this particular one was done that way. But it was not actually a signed copy that they looked at that day, the day of his Warren Commission testimony. Amos would read it carefully and then declare that the sheriff's office must have taken things down wrong. You see, that statement clearly said that he had seen a white man. Amos would not very deftly discuss the idea that there must have been confusion about what he said, and what he said was that he saw a bald spot that basically was white. So here we are at the Warren Commission, and after hearing at least once that he was an African-American person, and then secondly, that he was not white, uh, and then having it in the FBI report that he was white, and then having it in the sheriff's office report that he was white, well, this is a confusing mess. On the boxes, though, a rather inanimate object, Amos would go on to be more confident about the fact that the boxes were present in the window and began describing them in more detail. There were two or three of them, about 19 inches high, another nice round number. He would also confirm rather confidently that the windows in the other double window immediately to the left of the shooter's nest window were not open. He was questioned about where the shots came from as well, the noise of the shots, that is. He, like others, probably in the witness pool, were influenced by the fact that everyone began running toward the railroad yard. He even would go as far as to say that he really didn't even think the sound, at least initially, 
had come from the rifle in the window, because at first he just thought it was a pipe up there. But by the second shot, he was clear that the rifle he saw up above was where the gun sound was coming from. I know all that's confusing. How were people running by the first shot? Well, the truth is they weren't. But the flow of the conversation is such that I think the real intent of his testimony was simple. At first, he didn't put two and two together. But after thinking about it, he had concluded that after actually seeing the second shot, he knew it came from there, up in the depository window. Spectre would ask a few more simple housekeeping questions, and Ewans would get those wrong, too. Spectre asked whether he had been interviewed by the FBI more than once, and he said no. In fact, he had been interviewed twice by the FBI, once on November 29th, a week after the assassination, and again then about two weeks later on December 14th. You can't cut it any other way. This witness had valuable testimony that was compromised in some way, perhaps a combination of ways, and not the least of which was his own personal challenges in choice of words and ability to communicate clearly. Look, he was a 15-year-old boy, so cut him some slack for that. But that wasn't all that was going on here. Unfortunately, in the end, it impugned, to some extent, his credibility as a witness at that moment. That was a loss in the quest to find the truth. But in all of these haystacks that we have wandered around in, recall the needle that we just pointed out. A witness identified and articulated to a policeman that someone had run out of the back of the depository building. Keep that top of mind over the next several episodes, and we'll marry that up at just the right moment. And remember, there was the curious identification provided by that same witness of the bald spot, the same bald spot that young Amos saw. Well, was that just a coincidence or convenience? Convenience for Amos in his testimony. We don't know for sure but just keep it in mind. One more thing about Amos. There is an interesting postscript to this that I need to mention. Amos had a camera in the plaza that day, and whatever he was having trouble articulating, well, maybe he could have just let the camera speak for himself. It was a simple camera that he had brought that day to take some pictures, and in all the excitement, he ostensibly left it in the plaza. But we know that he took at least a few pictures. Nobody knows what he took pictures of or where the camera finally made its way to. Another item of evidence lost that day. He was actually asked in another interview at a later date whether he took any pictures of those windows and particularly if any shots were taken that might contain a picture of the gunman. He didn't answer that question specifically, and the discussion moved on. Rather curiously, I might add. I would also like to point out the frailties of sworn testimony. The fact that he had a camera was never brought out in his Warren Commission testimony or any of the FBI or Sheriff's Office statements that preceded his commission testimony. The interviewers are skilled 
but they are not mind readers. When they ask open-ended questions like, is there anything else you would like to tell us? Well, that is the fill-in-the-blank portion of the test. That is where things like this should have come up. In all reality, that is a standard question all of these commissioned lawyers should have asked each witness in the plaza that day. Did you have a camera and did you take any photos or movies? But they never incorporated that into the routine. Instead, they asked how good people's eyesight was. Geez, really? I guess relevant, but I'm just saying. Really, the whole series of testimony for young Amos Lee Ewens was a roller coaster. At the scene itself, Amos stated to Jim Underwood that the man shooting was a colored man. By the time he was through with his sheriff's office affidavit later that afternoon on the 22nd, just a few hours later, it was clearly stated in the affidavit that this man was a white man who was taking the shots. By the time November 29th rolled around and he had his first FBI interview, you see, at that point, Amos couldn't tell anything about the man, including his race. Two weeks later, on December 14th, at his second FBI interview, he began to remember a little bit more about the man in the window, identifying the bald spot on the man's head for the first time, but again, verifying that it was a white man because his hand extended outside of the window. Then, in March, he meets with the Warren Commission and his testimony there, as you just heard, well, he would not even verify that it was a white man or any other skin color. One thing that was consistent throughout the testimony was that he could not identify the individual. As to the gun, well, that's interesting too. Let's also rewind the tape on that one all the way back to November 22nd as well and start there. In the sheriff's office affidavit on the 22nd, he would identify the sound as that of a rifle, from the sound that you could tell that it was a rifle or it sounded like an automatic rifle, the way the gunman was shooting. And he did see a little bit of the barrel and some of the trigger housing. Now, fast forward to November 29th, the date of his first FBI interview, and at that time, he was more confident that, in fact, it was a rifle because he had heard the shots that were fired. But then, mysteriously, in the second FBI interview on December 14th, the gun reverts back to a metal rod and appears initially now at a time frame that is prior to the presidential motorcade arriving. In all fairness, I believe what Amos was trying to articulate here was that he actually had seen the rifle prior to the presidential motorcade turning down Elm Street, but he initially mistook it for a rod, or a pipe, as he would later describe it to the Warren Commission. And once he heard what he thought was a backfire and looked up again, that's when he noticed a rifle, and not a pipe, in the depository window, viewing the second and the third shots. Not well articulated, Amos, and with some inconsistency. But I think it is safe to conclude that was the meaning contained in his testimony. Oh, and in the December 14th testimony, the bald spot that this man apparently had shows up for the first time, basically as the only distinguishing feature about the man that Amos would offer up. By the time we got to the Warren Commission, 
Well, you heard relevant comments from Amos on what he said there about all those topics. I would just say the rod became a pipe. But you get the picture as we're splitting hairs now. He really was a bit of a mess as a witness. But clearly, at the end of the day, and in the bigger picture, he looked up and saw shots being fired out of that window on the sixth floor at the presidential motorcade. Regardless of everything else, that was significant. And he clearly identified, in some ways, better than most of the other witnesses, the floor and the window that the shots came from. And remember, what may be the most intriguing thing happening here is what Amos overheard being said to Officer Harkness about a man running out the rear of the school book depository and having a bald spot. An extraordinary circumstance to hear that one physical feature called out by a totally separate witness. The same feature Amos had articulated on two occasions in his own testimony, a bald spot he felt that he saw. Stay tuned on that one. Now you see what I mean about the testimony here. Oh, and one more PSS. The FBI on November 29th sought out John Eddie Jones, Amos's stepfather, to talk with him about Amos's testimony. What they documented is interesting in all sorts of ways. The bottom line is that they stated that the stepfather said, the boy had told him about the incident, that is, what happened that day, but that the stepfather was unsure whether Amos had actually seen it or just imagined it. He would add nothing more to the statements already available to the FBI. When you were down near the Daly Plaza on Houston Street, across from the courthouse, mm -hmm. were you by yourself then? Yes. You were? Yeah. You, all right. The lady that you first told that you saw something in the window, do you know who that lady is? No, sir, I sure don't. Did you have a camera at the time? Yeah, but I don't remember what happened to it. Did you take any pictures? I took some pictures, but I don't remember what happened to the camera. Did you take pictures of the shooting, or you took pictures of... I took pictures of everything I could get shot of. At that time? <laughs> at when that the... time. But I, I can't, I don't remember. I don't remember what happened. Did you take pictures of the man in the window? I took pictures of the building, and, right. and uh, what have you, you know. But I, I just can't, I just can't remember what happened. Ewing, let me ask you. Did you have your camera when you got on the motor? No. Uh, you didn't have it when you got on the motor. I, I either left it. I either left it behind the uh, the brick thing or it in, in the pond. You know, the, yeah. it's, it's a little water pond there. Right. It's either in the pond or on the brick deal. What I hid behind, because I didn't carry it with me. But you had it before the shooting started. And when did you I start taking it. pictures? Well. After after I had gotten over there, well, we taking we taking out taking oh one or two you know small shots you know how you do mm -hmm. and I just taking a few shots but to me it wasn't nothing important you know just mm -hmm. building and right. whatnot because I really couldn't get a good shot and what I really wanted I wanted to take a picture of the you know motor cars and whatnot but you really couldn't mm -hmm. couldn't do you know very much with it yeah. but I don't know what happened to it. I, what I really, kind of camera did you have? Oh, it was just a little cheap camera. It wasn't no, mm -hmm. no real big thing. It was just, well, maybe, when, then, when the then, shooting then, started, about $8 or $9, you know. Yeah. 
When the shooting started, you started taking pictures? No, when the shooting started, I had hit. I when I lost the camera or what. Right. I left it or whatever. Mm-hmm. Now, you said that uh, you don't recall. You did give a statement. Yes, sir. Right. Now, here, I have a copy from the Sheriff's Department, County of Dallas. Thank you for listening to episode 29 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.